Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Betsy Finch, founder and director of the Raptor Recovery Center in Nebraska. Today's show is an unusual and exciting show, as it was, literally, recorded last winter in the field, and in the barns, and at the pens of the Raptor Recovery Center, which is based in a rural corner of southeast Nebraska. Some of the audio you'll hear reflects the nature of this being a field recording. As well as hearing Betsy Finch describing the work of the Raptor Recovery Center, you'll also hear the voice of my wife Amy and Betsy's husband Doug. And, of course, we will meet some of the raptors. On arrival at the centre, we made our way to the office and hospital barn, where we recorded the initial part of our conversation, and I asked Betsy to introduce herself. Okay, my name is Betsy Finch. I am the founder of Raptor Recovery Nebraska. That started in 1976 uh, when I was president of the local Wachiska Audubon Society based out of Lincoln. And since I was president, we got the call to do some sort of a conservation project that had a positive aspect to it. Because back then, all environmentalists were considered negative. And someone suggested a rehabilitation program. Since I was president, I got to organize the whole thing. We had to have state and federal permits. We had to have a food source. We had to have um, veterinarians, volunteers, and most important were falconers. When we, I think we started in the spring or something, by fall we had all of that, of 76 we had that in place got our permits and started getting birds in. And I got so interested in working with them that I stayed with them and here we are today. We've handled over 13,000 raptors since that time. And where are we? Where are we um, located broadly and, and what building are we in here? We are at what we call the Elmwood Rehabilitation Center. The building we are in is what we call the Trauma Care Center. It consists of three rooms, um, the treatment area slash office area, a freezer room, and then the actual hospital cages themselves. And this was brought about by a friend of mine who, well, one of our co-former workers, um, had a good friend who was a builder. And he built this for us, basically labor-free. What else is on this, um, you know, the landscape here? Right. Um, this is a, it's a five acre property that I bought in 95, because it has a house on it. Um, and it had a few outbuildings and we've added some outbuildings and taken some away. And over the years have basically turned all of the outbuildings into areas that, for birds. And we, had a, we got a grant from the Environmental Trust in 1999, and that allowed us to build some of the big, the really big flight pens, which I will show you. The flight pens are um, 
outdoor uh, exercise areas of varying sizes to where we can move birds from a smaller to a larger to a larger one in preparation for them to release. So it, it depends on the status of the bird, where it is in the rehabilitation process, um, as to that's how we decide where the bird goes next. So it's raptors that you deal with specifically. Correct. What is a raptor? How is that different from other birds? A raptor is is defined um, as a bird of prey. Most people know them by that. Uh, hawks, owls, eagles, falcons, ospreys, harriers, those types of things. That basically the word raptor comes from the Latin meaning to seize. So they actually seize their prey with their feet. And these birds are characterized by very strong feet and talons, um, a strong hooked bill, and uh, just the ability to catch other animals. Although, and I hate to say they're the only meat eaters because they're not. When you think about it, robins eat worms, kingfishers eat fish. This, you know, but but the raptors are classified in a in a different area altogether. With that, what raptors do you have here now, and, and what raptors do you typically see? We uh, we typically we've got we have seen just about every raptor that's occurred in the state of Nebraska, including some that are not native. About three years ago, we got in a caracara. Oh, what's that? A crested caracara. They're from Mexico and Texas. Yeah, what he was doing up here, I don't know. I think it had to do with the fact, and this is another whole topic where uh, weather affects migration, affects populations, and, and so on. But that was the year that they had a lot of fires in Texas and Oklahoma. And I think that, a big drought, and I think that forced the bird north. And this person called and said, I have a Kara Kara. He's in Columbus, Nebraska. Sure you do. Bring it on down. Okay, it was. <laughs> Two years ago, we got in a black vulture. Now, normally, we have turkey vultures here. But black vultures, again, are Texas, Mexico, Florida, that kind of area. And again, someone in Lincoln called and said, I have a black vulture in my yard. And I'm like, no, you don't. It's a turkey vulture. Well... One of my Lincoln people who is a birder picked this bird up and she brought it out and said, here's this turkey vulture. She pulled it out of the box. It's like, uh, Elaine, this is a black vulture. She goes, really? Yes. Young bird, again, why he was here, I don't know. But I have a good friend in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> so we shipped him down there where he had black vultures and so he got to go free there. Are you seeing changes in bird behavior, bird um, migratory habits, and any other changes to their sort of uh, usual? Trends we're seeing or have seen over the last few years have been population trends. Um, for example, 15 years ago, we had very few Cooper's Hawks in the whole state. If we got eight or nine in in a year, we were like, wow, last year, we got 68 Cooper's Hawks in, a huge increase. Also, at the same time, um, we've seen a concomitant decrease in kestrels because they eat them. And so, sorry. Um, 
That's one trend that we've noticed. We used to get about 70 or 75 kestrels in every year, and now we're lucky if we get 30. It's just been a real, a real change. Um, uh, a problem, I think, with kestrels is lack of nesting sites. Mm -hmm. They nest in holes in trees. You can provide boxes for them, but they need open areas. They're not found in woodland, wooded areas. And the Cooper's hawks have increased, and this is, both of these are nationwide trends. They've been seeing this all across the country. They think the reason for the Cooper hawk increase is everybody's feeding birds. So they're concentrating birds. And Cooper's hawks are bird eaters. So they find this smorgasbord all in one place. And, you know, they've really increased in numbers big time. Um, I don't know if you can say this is a trend. I think it's more of an ongoing problem that's getting more attention, and that's lead poisoning. Tell us more about that. Usually it happens because of uh, lead pellets that are used in hunting. Um, 25 years ago, Minnesota University of Minnesota Raptor Foundation uh, put out a whole bunch of um, evidence to prove that this is where they're getting it. So they at least did a nationwide ban on lead shot for waterfowl but there's lead shot in the bottoms of every lake it'll never go away and in times of drought when the water levels drop the ducks have more access to that lead they eat it they get sick they're targeted by predators who also get sick so the last few years it's been a lot of um, publicity that we're trying to get out that this is a problem and that people need to switch from lead shot for other hunting like upland game or deer to copper bullets or something that's not as toxic to birds because lead is toxic to people too. And they can also, the eagles can also get lead poisoning from lead sinkers in fish. And that's another source. But they have to ingest it. They don't get it by just being shot, which they are, even though it's against the law. But they get it by actually ingesting it. it. They're absorbed, you know, into the bloodstream. What are the typical types of injury that you see? And then what are the typical types of treatment that you're providing? Most of the injuries we see are collision injuries. They're hit by cars or trains or all kinds of things. They'll fly into fences, uh, buildings. They'll hit buildings in the middle of the night, you know, or like a peregrine will smack into a building chasing a bird. Cooper's Hawks will do the same thing. I'd say the largest part of our injuries are um, collision injuries. Whether or not a bone is broken, that, that again depends on how we treat them. Sometimes they just sustain a concussion or head trauma, which isn't quite so bad, but they come in with a broken wing that's a lot longer in, in rehab to get the wing mended. So I would say that's probably the biggest one. Um, weather is a big factor in birds that come in. Anytime you get like tornadoes, thunderstorms, high winds, blizzards, you're gonna get casualties. So sometimes we'll get birds in from that. Springtime, a lot of spring storms bring babies in because the trees are blown down. As trees are blown down, you have these little baby owls, which are darling, by the way. <laughs> 
that baby season is our favorite time because most of them are usually not injured. They're just little, you know, they're just young. And we have several owl mamas that foster babies for us. So they don't imprint to people. That's the last thing we want is to imprint them to people. An owl will accept another owl's baby. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They don't go by smell. Actually, the only bird that has a decent sense of smell is a vulture. Um, owls don't have a very good sense of smell. They go by sight. They go by sound. If their baby is making the same sound, they'll take care of it. Oh, right. That's oh, yeah. so interesting. Yeah, and sometimes it doesn't even matter if they don't look like them. Because um, we had a barn owl one time that was a mama foster. Mm-hmm. She laid eggs, which is what propels them into the motherhood mode. That part is instinctive. Um, and one time, I remember we fostered a little tiny screech owl to her and also a little baby great horned owl, and she just took them in and took care of them. We had to get them away from her and to their own kind before they opened their eyes because they didn't, we didn't want them to imprint thinking they were barn owls. You know, you can imagine a horned owl in the wild going after a barn owl looking for love, and the barn owl's it's like, run, forest, run, <laughs> because they eat barn owls in the wild. The, the biggest majority, um, the number, largest number, I guess, of baby owls we get in are gray horned owls and screech owls. And luckily we have fosters for both of them. So we, we have three, no, yeah, three, two horned owls and an eagle owl that foster horned owls. And we can switch them back and forth if we need to, depending on the age, depending on if we get littler ones in. Two, you know, we'll take the older ones away and give them smaller ones. Um, and I have a, a female screech owl that lays eggs, so she's a foster too. I grew up in Massachusetts, in the middle of what they call the sticks out there, middle of uh, Worcester County, which is right in the middle of the state, not far from the Quabbin Reservoir, which in the 30s, I think, they moved five towns and put in a dam to build a reservoir that supplies Boston with its water. But the area I grew up has woods and streams and bogs and ponds. And I had a brook in my backyard, you know. And my mother couldn't keep me out of it from the time I could walk. I was in there. So it feels to me as if you're saying that your life was very much an outdoor life from an yeah. early age. Yeah. Did that extend? Um, has it always been like that? Or have you ever been a sort of city person? Or Never been a city person, mm-hmm. no. Um, I, that's always been my first love is outdoors and the neat thing is my mother still lives back there she's 99 and I we can I can go back home and not much has changed it's so far removed and there are towns coming closer and encroaching but the places I was new as a child are still there 
when was that first experience where you had this inkling that raptors held a special compulsion and attachment for you? <laughs> My first compulsion was with turtles. <laughs> wow. I've, had, I've been in love with turtles since I was eight years old. And I've had turtles most of most of my life as well. Um, the raptors really didn't come until I was an adult and, and president of the Audubon. I'd always been interested in them, but never had access to them or contact with them. Most of my knowledge was gained just from watching things outdoors, watching birds, turtles, creatures in the water. And what is the relationship between you here and Fontenelle Forest's Raptor Center? We're all the same now. We merged. Raptor Recovery Nebraska merged with Fontenelle Forest in 2013. And the, the one part of their overall program now, we are called Fontenelle Forest's Raptor Recovery. Um, so we're all the same part. We're just the rehabilitation center down here. They are the... Um, uh, display area up there that was just built a couple of years ago and then they have a number of educational birds too that they do educational programs there we do educational programs we have another couple in Danabraw that do educational programs in the western part of the state so it's you know it's a statewide effort and organization and we can see every year that our job is never done because there are always people that don't know things that you know you can enlighten them on. What are for you some of the the key lessons, the key elements of enlightenment that, that you would want to communicate broadly to everybody? Um, probably, first of all, the fact that these birds are protected by law. We still get a number of gunshot birds in every year. We get birds that are trapped, that are poisoned, um, that get caught in barbed wire fences, all of that. 90% of, of the birds we see their injuries are caused by man, either directly or indirectly. And so we're just trying to put some of the activity on their side. I think first and foremost that they're protected. Number two, they are at the top of the food chain. They are indicators of our health of our environment. They eat a lot of animals that eat our food, like mice, rats, rabbits, those types of things that worldwide cause a huge um damage to human food like grains and stuff and the fact that there are helpers they're not here they don't hurt us they help us um a family of barn owls for example if they have like five babies each baby eats five mice a night a night every baby you can imagine how busy those parents are Said, someone said once over the course of a season of them breeding, they can eat up to 5,000 mice. So that's significant, you know. They're the farmer's friend. They should not be shot. <laughs> How do you frame a hopeful mindset for the future? Um, for me, I think it's uh, educating the children. That's really the key, is getting their minds changed. And sometimes they'll go home and say, Dad, you shouldn't be shooting those hawks, you know. Really, I think that's what it's all about, is education. So, which is why we've done so much of it. <laughs> and still have more to do. What have you learned about yourself from your interaction with birds? He's gonna make me cry again. <laughs> again? 
used to be very shy, and I, I think I've realized I'm stronger than I thought, maybe. And when it comes to advocating for these birds, boy, I'm right there. I guess that's what I've learned about myself. And I think the sometimes the biggest uh, way we can advocate is when we do educational programs yeah. with the public, because you get a lot of good questions there that you can answer in a different fashion, you know, maybe get away from the mindset that they were taught and show them what we know with hands-on experience. Right. And you take a live bird in with you, that really captures their attention. It really does. Yeah. So, um, shall we do the eagle? Sure. At this point, while Betsy prepared the medication, her husband Doug went to fetch the golden eagle receiving lead poisoning treatment through a process known as chelating. You can see a photo of that eagle on the show's Instagram feed and Facebook page. to do in order to treat lead poisoning is do what we call chelation therapy. Okay. That's where you, you inject them with a chemical, ADTA, that binds or chelates the lead and then they can excrete it through their kidney. This is the fluid that we, we're going to uh, sub-Q probably in the groin, in the bird's groin where there's nice loose skin. So we just put the um, medicine, oh come on, into the fluid rather than inject it intramuscularly. This is a much um, less painful way to give it. So Doug will bring her out and we'll sit her down and have some fun. So we do this twice a day for five days and then we rest them for two days and then we start up again. I may have him help me. All right, okay. Hi. Hey, buddy. You think you want to eat? Is she breathing hard or anything? Not really. She kind okay. of groaned a little bit when I picked her up. Okay. But nothing like what she was doing previously. We'll do it in her left leg. Left leg. Okay. Some of the signs of lead poisoning in birds and eagles are where they cry or they grunt. And she was grunting and really doing some hard breathing when she came in, in addition to just being prone. So you're just squirting the liquid on that? Yeah, this is alcohol. It's just isopropyl alcohol. Trying to find the skin. They have so many down feathers. So, Doug, you're holding mm -hmm. her on your lap, and she seems <laughs> relatively calm. Hi. Hi, mm -hmm. baby. It's okay. That's the grunt. Yeah, she if she were healthy, she'd be a handful. You know, we wouldn't be doing this like we are right now. So no, with her feet that close to my face, mm -hmm. either boy, lady. And Betsy mentioned the the fact that they cry when they have lead poisoning. I mean, there's hardly anything 
more gut-wrenching than to hear that, you know, from a bird that you know is so powerful and strong. Okay. I'll give you this. Mm-hmm. Hold on to the syringe. Just come a little closer. And when I say these birds are strong, they've measured the foot strength at a thousand pounds per square inch when they grab something so they can really bear down. Yeah, it's it's incredible for a 12-pound bird that they can exert such force. Another thing that lead poisoning does is it paralyzes the gut. Oh, wow. So they can't digest. And if you feed them too much, uh, it'll just sit in there and rot. That's wow. not good either. And it can cause neurological, all kinds of neurological mm-hmm, problems, mm-hmm. Um, convulsions, uh, head twitching, all of that stuff. So thank you. I'm going to try to give her just a little bit of food here. What have you cut up there? Okay, this is just deer meat that's been donated to us. You ready? This is where she springs into action. Well, okay. Once more. One more. Yeah, people might see this and think, oh, it would be nice to have one of these for a pet. No. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> no. This is. A very sick bird. Yeah, so well, back. We can put her back. Yeah. We can take a sneak peek into the yeah. into the bird room. Could you describe where we're standing? We are in the what we call our bird room, but this is actually the hospital room for uh, the trauma care center. Um, we have a number of patients in here in varying degrees of um, injury, I guess you'd say, the eagle with lead poisoning. Actually, this is Cochise, who is a Harris Hawk, one of our educational birds. He's 19 now, so they wanted to retire him. So I have him. <laughs> Okay, this so, is yeah, one so way let to... Me, let me ask you to describe <laughs> what, what you're doing? doing. I'm taking a mouse, cutting a tiny hole in it, and inserting an antibiotic. We have a, a great horned owl with a really deep laceration on his breast and wing. So he gets antibiotics, and that's the best way to do it. Because they gulp it right down. What are you doing, Dave? Uh, you can come take a little bit 
Sequoia. Who are these? Sequoia. There. This is a little red-faced screech owl. Um, he is also a foster. We found out he was a male, but he um, was in a clutch of five chicks where the uh, chainsaw went through the nest. Someone cut the tree and three of the chicks were killed outright. One we were able to release. This one had a really badly broken wing, so we couldn't release him. So he's basically non-flighted, but he's my friend. Aren't, uh, he likes to come out in the early morning and you know I'll sit down and he'll come out and sit on my arm and look out the window. And then up here we have a little tiny saw-wet owl. That's our smallest owl in Nebraska. He's way up on top of the, in the corner. Can mm -hmm. you see him? I can. Yeah. yeah, they weigh about three ounces. <laughs> and they typically hunt for mice. mice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mice and insects. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. To try to bring their awareness up. What is it that is so compelling to humans? about raptors because I don't know kids would be the same if it was a robin uh, oh right yeah I think it's because they're powerful um, fierce independent I suppose unusual I unusual. mean you see, yeah you see you know robins kind of not a dime a dozen but you know what I mean yeah, yeah. they're a lot more common yeah so yeah. maybe it's that idea of this is something I'm not frequently seeing, or mm -hmm. maybe if I'm lucky, I will see it because I am observing my environment mm -hmm. more yeah. more effectively. So they they do they have a certain mystique about them, and the native peoples all over the world have revered eagles and other raptors for thousands of years too. It's true. So I you know I guess that's part of it. I don't know. They just just in our nature strike a chord with yeah. people. Yeah. Maybe it calls, I love you use that expression, maybe it calls to something in our nature that mm -hmm. otherwise we, we don't tap into. That doesn't mm -hmm. awaken, doesn't uh, get And maybe tweaked. it's, yeah, yeah, and maybe it's the wildness, the fierceness. Yeah. Because we're losing so much of the wild all mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, when um, you, Stuart, when you were just saying that, I was like, it's the freedom. It's the freedom that you're, you assume they represent, right? Because right. they can go anywhere. I mean, they can't go anywhere, but they can, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. From places we can. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And look down on us. <laughs> who, who hasn't had a flying dream? You know, and just yeah. imagine right. that you could do that. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a sensation that you get that I get from that. It doesn't happen often. Though. Yeah. <laughs> well, the natives say they carry messages to the gods, so that could be part of it too. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you've never heard a barn owl. I mean, they will ring your ears oh, when wow. they scream. They don't hoot, they scream. Hmm. And I think that's where the term banshee came from in England, because the barn owls would frequent the cemeteries looking for mice and, uh, you know, somebody out walking at dark. This white ghostly thing fly over and I'm sure that's where I'm sure there are banshees. That's exactly what I would want as I'm walking through a graveyard at nighttime. <laughs> I like to imitate the barn owl for kids. Well, I do the barn owl too. You know, but the barn owl is whoop, 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 
blue and never answer. They never come to you? They never No. I did have one come to me once, a wild one, but but my barred owl just looks at me like, oh, that is so bad. Yeah. You might be saying something you shouldn't Maybe. be saying. Uh, you know, it might be in the intonation. Maybe, or whatever. maybe I'm insulting them. Yeah. No, yeah. I, there she goes I, I thought that was very impressive. They nest in holes in trees. If you have really big trees nearby. We do. You know, you may have a we family do. of barred owls nesting. They nest after the great horns. The great horns are the first. Oh, they usually lay eggs in January. And so by March is when we start getting babies in that are blown out of nests. But then the barred owls, I think, are a month later than the great horns. The recovery centre has numerous housing and recuperation outbuildings and flight pens for the raptors. Some house permanently and some stepping up as they recover. The birds need a lot of care and food, so Betsy took us out on her evening round of feeding. Anyway, here we go. Okay. Here you go. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> do we need it? I'll do a no. head count when you come back, just to make sure everybody's here. This is Uhura. She's a light phase great horned owl. Um, she has trouble with her legs. And we're not, we never could find anything wrong, but she, she has strong wings, but she really can't fly. Um, and she, we do use her as a foster. We'll give her the half-grown chicks because they can kind of fledge in here and still be safe before they, uh, you know, when they first start, they're pretty cozy. Hey, sweetie. Most birds won't eat in front of you. Oh, I usually is that true? Yeah, I usually just leave it and go. Yeah. She will. She's, she has. But um, they're all going to know somebody new is here. Their eyes are so compelling. Aren't they something? Yeah, it's amazing. That might be part of the owl's mystique, too, is the eyes. I was mm. wondering that. Because they seem to, you know, of course, like, you know, you can interpret it however you want. But they seem to just look into you. Yeah. Like, human. Mostly hawks. No owls in this pen for right now or in this barn. So it's just like a 
intermediary, a step this, up from yep. the hospital. Right. Okay. Yeah, this is the intermediary where they go to slightly larger pins, get them stronger that way. Sometimes a bird recovering from a broken wing, um, if you give them too much space too soon, they re-break the wing. So you have to do it in stages and get them stronger mm. as they go. See if they could get them to nest. Yeah. Uh, and I don't. I haven't heard how. I don't think. It's this is a golden eagle. Uh, it came in with a shoulder injury, and it's been a few months, but we're finally getting her back this is a 120 foot flight pen yeah would you would you describe what this what yeah this is uh we call our flight complex because we have three large flight pens here two 60 foot pens and one full 120 feet um the wildlife rehab um associations say that uh, for um you need a minimum of 100 feet for uh, flight training for raptors for different ones and this is 120 so it exceeds that still nothing compared to what they can do in the wild but at least it prepares them for it and then in this one in front of us we have the one in here we have a, a golden eagle mm. that is uh, has finally um succeeded in getting up she was in that pen for a while and she finally got up to the high high perches they're like 20 feet in the air. If an eagle or a bird can fly straight up, they're pretty strong. That's another thing. And you'll see these birds sometimes fly real low and then go right up to the perch. It's pretty neat to watch. I can see if I can get her to fly this way, if you want to see that. Well, the answer is yes, but I don't want to make the bird perform, <laughs> well, exactly. but it would be pretty amazing. <laughs> Uh, 
I know, Carol. I hear ya. I hear ya. She has orange eyes. This is Bill. Yeah, tell us, tell us about. Bill is from uh, uh, Comanche uh, Nation um, Avian Institute in Oklahoma. She is a human imprint. She was hand raised there. Uh, they are from Europe, Asia, Russia, uh, the largest owl in the world, and a direct cousin to the great horned owl. And we can use her as a foster because of that. The babies look at that face and imprint to that image instead of people. So once she lays eggs, then she's in the motherhood mode. And she's, um, what, what species did you say? Eurasian eagle owl. Yeah. And does Belle have a personality that you oh. recognize now? Yeah. Well, her original name was Mupets, which is a Comanche, Comanche word for um, boogeyman. But we had a bird whisperer here, and the bird whisperer said she didn't like that name. She was a pretty bird. She didn't like being called a boogeyman, so we changed her name to Belle, which is Pretty much my rounds for the evening. I do it twice a day. Yep. And then I just set food out for the next day for the eagles. More hawks, more, more mice, yeah. more rats, more quail, <laughs> more fish. All of that. <laughs> That's my day. Piano music in today's show was composed and performed by Ray Howe and was drawn from the songs The Owl and the Eagle, Heavy Feathers and Bluebird on her album Invisible Wilderness Volume 1.
thank you so much for sharing your passion with us, Betsy. It's, um, it'll be great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking. You can tell I love talking about the birds. Thank you. You too, Doug. Okay, thank, thank you. you. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Music